<laughs> Hi, welcome to season seven. We're in episode six of what we're calling the dark side of marketing. And the reason we wanted to do this, and, and we actually are enjoying it because there's so much to learn from uh, things that seem like they're not so up and up. But when you really look into them more, there's elements of great marketing. And that's what we're doing is, is kind of looking at the bright side of darkness. Um, I'm Mary Abazia, and with me is Tom Spitali and Sean Wellam. Hi, special Hi. shout out to all our listeners in India. And um, sorry about this, if you're watching us, um, I can't do anything about that shadow today on my forehead. It, I'm okay. Yeah, it's, it's cloudy in Florida, poor guys. <laughs> um, so we are going to focus today on uh, sugar. And uh, Sean, uh, what, what's, what's wrong with sugar? Or what, what, what's so dark about something so yummy? Well, sugar is a, is, a, is a product that's grown enormously. I think everybody's aware of the amount of sugar that we eat. It has grown hugely over the last hundred years. And, and many sources, many authorities think this is bad for us whether it's obesity or tooth decay or, or the, the increase in diabetes, essentially sugar is a bit of a bad guy. Um, and what I'm going to refer to is an article that the, the Journal of the American Medical Association published about four years ago now. And they were, they were reviewing all of the, uh, the, the evidence around the marketing and promotion of, of, of sugar and came to the conclusion that the journal, sorry, that the, the, uh, the American Sugar foundation i think or the sugar research foundation not only um suppressed some information that may suggest sugar was bad for you or at least didn't promote it or downplayed it i think was the term they used they also promoted the idea that the real bad guy was fat and for those of us of a certain age we'll know that through the 80s and 90s uh, fat was the bad guy. Everything was low fat, this cut down on your fat, cholesterol and all the rest of it. Very much the focus. Sugar got a little bit of a pass. It wasn't really a focus area. And what's interesting about that is it wasn't unknown. It's not as if we just came to realize that sugar had some negative health effects. Uh, there was a book written in 1972 called Pure White and Deadly. And the opening line or the opening paragraph, the author said, I hope by the time you've read this book, you will understand that sugar is dangerous. And this was a scientist. This was not some random conspiracy theorist. Although his ideas were, were essentially ignored or downplayed because they didn't get any traction. And the reason, and this is the part of the dark side of marketing that I want to dig into, is that the sugar lobby, whether that's the Sugar Research Foundation or, or other trade bodies, did a very good job of, of creating credible evidence to key influencers, thereby taking the pressure off any further scrutiny of their own product or, or methods. They did a good job of both downplaying the risks of sugar and in a marketing sense, in a moment of genius, they managed to develop a bad guy in, in terms of fat. Fat is the one you should be looking at, which gave them a bit of a a bit of a pass. So in terms of the dark side, they used influencers. They paid for research. They commissioned research that supported their cause. They provided this information to um, key government departments and other influential bodies and operated under that umbrella of a general opinion around sugar. What 
we've seen happen in what we want to take back, if you like, and what we've seen work in, in, in a more ethical way is to use that power of influencers to help create a more conducive environment for your own product or service to, to match what the sugar lobby did with a, with a, a slightly more positive spin, a more ethical approach to getting your, your products. So do you guys think of examples of that or, or ideas around how influence works in the, in the, on the, sounds on the, like a, the ledger? it sounds like um, a cousin of the cigarette world. <laughs> but, yeah, right. but, <laughs> um, Tom, what do you think? Uh, I'm first of all, I'm, um, I'm, I'm a little bit angry because I love sugar. I guess that's terrible sweet tooth. And so I'm, I'm, I'm mad at these guys that they did this. The other thing is, is that, you know, um, of the three of us, Sean, would you agree Mary's the fittest of the three of us? Without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. She doesn't eat much sugar. In fact, Mary, do you remember what I told you when you told me you didn't like cake? Oh, told me about. Wrong. I think there's something wrong with me. <laughs> I just said I can't trust anybody that doesn't like cake. So Mary doesn't like cake. So anyway, no. and um, my husband and my husband works for the sugar industry. Well, okay, I didn't know if you wanted to reveal that or not. There's a lot to unpack here. Okay, so well, we're going to create a domestic incident of this. I, I, <laughs> I we need to tread carefully. I, I think the first thing that I want to bring out, I don't know if I, I, I necessarily, I'm, I'm going to talk a little more general. Sean, you asked for stories. Let's just talk a little bit more general first. Right. Uh, let me, let, and let me ask a question. Is there such thing as a fat lobby? There's a sugar lobby. Is there a fat lobby? There's not, right? I mean, it's just too general. It's not really necessarily. <laughs> because no, but you know, you, you would find though, Tom, there would be a, 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 not fat per se, but there'd be a dairy lobby. There'd be a yeah. lobby, for, you know, the cheese industry and the, and the, the, the milks and cream say, you know, trying to put their case. So the, yeah. the, there would be a, a counterpoint, but you're right. A bit, even actually a, a multiple coalition, if they want. The, the problem is, is fat got positioned. And we've always said, don't let the competition position you. It's never a good thing. You have to be proactive. And so what happened to fat is that sugar pointed at them and nobody was sticking up for fat. So people started you know, um, uh, staying away from fat. As Sean said, I remember all throughout the 80s and 90s, all the craze of the, the low and no fat, you know, stuff. And it's actually, there's a lot of great things for that, that fat gives you, including your, you know, it helps your brain and helps you think. But um, that is a terrible name. <laughs> you know, first of all, the connotation is terrible. So that, that would have been the first challenge. But that's what strikes me. Uh, is that um, you can't let, you know, if you're out there marketing a B2B product and you're not being proactive about positioning yourself and you let the competition do it, it's not a good thing. Don't let that happen. Well, you think about it, so you make a good point about the name. It's got a bad name, you said, but really it's just a name, the same as protein or carbohydrate or, um, or fiber or any other aspect of, of, of describing things that we eat or, or, or constituents of what we eat. But you're right. It is, you, you said yourself, it's bad, but it's only bad because it was originally just a descriptive word. And then it becomes this bad by, by association with its, its cause and effect, if you like. Yeah, well, it reminds me of our, of, I mean, going down this alley is the prune board, you know, in California that was called the prune board and sold prunes. And then one day they realize no one wants to admit that they eat prunes. They might, but they don't want to admit it. But there's a lot of very healthy uh, benefits to it. And once they started calling it the plum, 
you know, they all of a sudden it was like, oh, I'm going to have plums on my lamb and roast. All of a sudden it was a gourmet thing. It just completely, what's in a name is huge, um, which is all about the power positioning. But it took them another several years um, to call themselves the plum board and not the prune board. <laughs> but once they did, I think they got a little more respect. So, so yeah, there is a lot in positioning, not only for yourself, but what you're calling your, your products and your category, even you can, you can just reframe your whole category if you need to. And, and all of a sudden people start thinking about you completely different. Yeah, that's what all the fat, the fat people should have done. The fat, the dairies, the cheeses, not the fat people. but the, They, they people. do need to, to, to a large extent, well, to some extent, because now we're all familiar with omega-3 and fatty acids, and, and those, those are good things for heart health. So you, you see things that, that still, by definition, are high in fat, but they'll be sold as a good source of omega-3, for example. So people are following that prune, plum, sort of name changing because it's really hard to to change a position that someone's given you without repositioning yourself and that invariably means a, a, a different name yeah, yeah. i, I want to go down another the other alley if you will of the influencers i thought that that was a really good point that you made sean is is that you know, you can, you can call yourself or you can do a lot of positioning, but if you aren't whispering in the right ears, you know, if you aren't looking at that influencer map and seeing the power, maybe even, um, you know, there's power in what it is today, but also seeing how things shift. You know, we're going through this crazy pandemic and all of those influencer maps have shifted. So companies that are selling uh, medical devices, as an example, have uh, shifted some of their efforts um, over to selling to governments directly because they know that that's where the pot of money is as opposed to in just the hospitals. And they, they're getting a lot of traction doing that. Um, but that's because they, they looked at the influencer map and figured out where they should put more of their efforts and, and different efforts. You know, your salespeople don't necessarily call in the government. You know, I, I heard it on medical devices. You reminded me of an interesting story. This was about a, a, a pretty advanced um, scanning device. Portability was at its core and it had some limited functionality, but it, it, it meant that you didn't always have to send a patient to an MRI scanner, which, as you know, is a fairly big piece of kit. It could do some rudimentary work um, remotely and locally. And they tried initially the marketing plan was to to go to the top physicians in their field and obviously get them to use it because you would assume they'd be strong influencers, you know, the top orthopedic surgeons and what have you. Um, and while that was somewhat successful, they realized that the, the group that had the most influence were those that were working in teaching hospitals. For obvious reasons, when you think about it, they are going to be using this device and being seen with this device by the young, impressionable, recently graduated new medics that are now learning their trade. And as we know, what you see and get familiar with early on tends to stick around. We, we, we tend to be comfortable. So the idea of, of, of doing the influencer map and saying, yeah, these, these people have some influence, these senior doctors, but it's the ones that are teaching in the hospitals that have a massive influence, much bigger than their total demand for the product, because there's, there's relatively few of them in terms of the, the overall uh, physician population. I always thought that was a a pretty smart way to, to do the influencer and say, wow, these, these people actually have the influence. So let's get them the product and see what happens. And, and sales grew. You could, you could even go beyond that. I mean, we've done a fair amount of work with um, companies that are building their influencing plan. And it's always an interesting debate, not just about, you know, finding the doctors in the teaching hospitals, but 
do you invest in, in, in the students? Because they're eventually going to have their own practice. And so do you have a way to, to maybe kind of focusing, focus on, on the students and establish communications about your products with the students so that, that when they go into their own practice, they have experience with your product or service. And now you maybe have them for life or as long as you stay relevant. That, that was actually, Tom, that was the two-pronged strategy. That they identified the teachers, if you like, as the influencers yep. and the young medics who were acquiring their own equipment and starting, as you, as you say, to buy things. Right. That was defined as the customer segment group was right. newly qualified medics mm -hmm. and the influencers were teachers at the hospital. So it was a nice synergistic little tie-up between customer segmentation, albeit more of a classification, I guess. But nevertheless, they targeted a, a relatively small group and used a, uh, an influence strategy with the people that they would be taking their instruction from. Wow. Um, my favorite influence story is, um, you know, you can, this works at any scale. It works with, you know, we're talking about products, we're talking about markets, uh, but also companies. And, you know, our GE, um, when they expanded into Europe, went to, of course, London, because they spoke English there. So it'd be easier when they first expanded, you know, globally. And um, they were trying to get a lot of legislature through and, and acquire different companies, and they kept getting shut down. And uh, it was because they were they were not near the power base the, where the, all the decisions were being made. So once they packed up and they moved themselves to Brussels, and they are actually in the same uh, corridor, you know, they can look in on the other offices, they can look down on the reg uh, regulators offices, and they go down, they have beer, they have coffee together. And uh, they were able to get a lot more through. It's because they, they physically even put themselves where those main decision makers were. So they, they really did understand the power of an influenced math. It's funny you mentioned that, Mary, because I, I, I used to work for GE, as you know, and I, I've been to that office, our, our Brussels office, as we called it. And it is literally facing the European Parliament building. It is literally on the same square. You look out the window and there's the magnificent European Parliament building. Um, and it was one of those uh, th those situations that I'm always reminded of because we're currently going through the final days of the Brexit negotiations right now. That's the big topic. And invariably, the Parliament building is on every single news bulletin with somebody standing in front of it. And I am now becoming very boring by saying, oh, that's G's opposite behind them. It is literally that close. But you're right, that proximity is another key element in influence. It's not just having the message, not just having the position and the name. Often it's about having that proximity or at least frequency. It's no good just to try and do these things once. You've got to get close to the influencers if you really want to leverage that power. I guess that's the key point there. Yeah. Mary, do we have time to unpack one more thing about all this? Because we've um, talked one, about- One quickly, yes, absolutely. Right, we talk about influencers and, and positioning. Uh, this is another topic that we talked about this season, trust. Okay, we talked about it when we were talking about the social dilemma, might have been last season, <laughs> they're blending together, but, but, but trust um, and, and how trust is so difficult these days because there's so many people out there that are doing what the, what the sugar lobby did and that is really espousing things that um, weren't, weren't true to try to, to and, and effectively doing so. And, and you see a lot of that going on in, in social media today, you know, 
And so for our clients, B2B marketers, what do you do about it? How do you get people to believe you? I get, you know, that's probably could be a whole range of strategies, but one of the things you've got to do is you've got to, to be a pair to appear, be fair and balanced. You know, try to present both sides of an argument if you can, even if one side of the argument makes, you know, makes your point better than the other, because there is so much mistrust right now. Um, you know, if the fat lobby <laughs> would have came out with a, a competing message, would they have been believed, you know, since the sugar lobby beat them to that, to it back way back when, you know, it's just a whole, it's a whole other, uh, other topic of trust. And I think on that time, trust is that the old saying, trust is uh, not, not deserved or given, you know, you have to earn it. And, and also trust is based on actions rather than statements of intent. Um, and what's interesting, you use the term fair and balanced. Isn't that Fox News's slogan? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the ultimate saying. If you want to believe someone who's fair and balanced, do not listen to the fact that they tell you they're fair and balanced because chances are they're not. It's almost as if the more you, you claim neutrality or trustworthiness or, or, or some degree of objectivity, the more you have to claim it, the less likely it is that you possess it. And it really is one of those things. When we talk about strategy being a long-term thing, long-term actions and, and demonstrable um, um, moves that you make are the key because when you get caught out once, the counter goes back to zero. It slowly creeps up to that level of trust, but break that covenant of trust and it falls back. You don't knock 5% off your trust. You fall all the way back. It's probably one of the most important critical capabilities that most businesses need is to maintain that trust level, which is probably a, a whole new topic of conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And then you open the brand door with that as well. Exactly know. right. Yeah. They're all connected. Everything's connected, right? Everything's connected. Um, any final thoughts before we wrap this up? Um. No, I, uh, I, I will declare a love for sugar myself. So I just want to be on Tom's side of the equation here. Show me a cake. It won't be there for long. That's what I'm saying. Other than that, nothing to add. So you can be trusted. <laughs> According to the Tom scale of trust, that makes me trustworthy. Oh, no, likable, I think he said, not trustworthy. Oh, oh I like Mary. I, I, maybe it was trust. I forget. I actually trust Mary now, even though she doesn't like cake. But this is early in. Oh, you just don't like her. I'm sorry, Tom. I misunderstood. I, I do Tom. like Mary and I trust Mary. But I had a little problem with Mary trust early in the beginning because she didn't like cake. And I've just found that people don't like cake for the most part. I, I, they're not really human. But Mary's proven she's got. <laughs> I'm glad you managed to work your issues out, the pair of you. I'm yeah, really pleased. We now we've got to concentrate on Mary uh, working out her is, uh, issues back home now. She's been uh, discussing the sugar lobby. But yeah, we'll boy, I'm, I'm going to end this baby now. So thank you very much for listening. We, uh, we hope that you have at least one thing to weigh in on, no pun intended, as you uh, listen to this and, and hopefully give us some of your feedback. Um, you can hear all of our podcasts if you're in India or, or, on our, um, or on our Accidental Marketer website and then also anywhere you get your, your podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you. Sorry, Tim Abazia.